You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Air Church. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love him and love their neighbour. We pray these sermons serve to deepen your love for and obedience to Jesus. And whilst we trust these podcast sermons bless you, we would not want them to replace you gathering with us personally as you're able to or committing to a local gospel church near you. So if you want to explore Jesus more, gather with us, or find a church near you, please get in touch through our website, harvestair.church. You are loved. Thank you. Yes, we have our scripture reading then from the book of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, and it's from chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel. If you happen to have one of the the Bibles that's available, then I believe it's on page 760 for you in there. So it's part of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, or Jesus teaching on the mountain, and it's from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. The heading is, Christ came to fulfill the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter kingdom of heaven. And now we have a short prayer of uh, commitment and requesting enlightenment on our uh, hearing of God's word this morning. Our loving Father, as your nation mourns the loss of our beloved Queen that we've remembered already, we thank you for her devotion to service, her strength and stability in unsure times, and her declaration of her faith in the Saviour. We now pray for her family, for our new king, King Charles III, and our prime minister, that they will have wisdom they need like no others in recent times. And whilst everything we've previously known may be shaken, help us to continue building on your unshakable word, depending on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and walking in the empowering and enlightenment of your Holy Spirit. And so now, as we turn to hear the teaching from your word, may our words be like a lamp. May your words be like a lamp that lights our way and fills our mind. May your truth be like a signpost bringing clarity and ever pointing us towards your will. May your love be like a compass that gives us direction and guides our feet. May your peace be like a sensor that guides our decisions. May your hope be like a flag that declares we walk close to you today and every day of our lives. So enlighten us today and we ask this through our Saviour's precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm pleased to keep your Bible open there at Matthew chapter 5. Um, it's going to be helpful for you to track along with what um, I'm saying. And if you don't have a Bible, there's just a, a Bible's over there, um, which you can grab if you need one. So I wonder, um, and I wouldn't presume this of all of you, but I would say it's true of myself, whenever you were in school, right, and a substitute teacher came uh, to teach you, and actually, as I was uh, thinking about this, Zoe's mum was a substitute teacher for me once, so I'll not say how I reacted to her. But when the substitute teacher came into class, right, there was always that kind of sense of, will they enforce the rules? 
And maybe more mischievously, what can I get away with or how far can we push the boundaries because our normal teacher's gone and this new teacher has come, right? If we're honest, that's how we all thought. And as we come to Matthew 5 this morning, particularly to these verses, we see, uh, and, and the people listening to Jesus, the crowd that would have been listening to him, predominantly Jews, Israelites, would have been making this comparison between Jesus and Moses. Um, and we've seen that in the way that there were dreams involved in their births, um, how they both had to pass through the River Jordan in order to um, fulfill and obey the Lord, uh, Moses and the people through the, 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 the Red Sea, and then Jesus baptized in the Jordan. We see, uh, and the people obviously crossed the Jordan as well in the way of the Promised Land. We also see that they both fasted 40 days and 40 nights before they received and gave the law, and now they both have ascended mountains. So the people there would have been making this comparison, drawing this comparison between Moses and the Old Covenant and the law that came before and now Jesus himself. And they were thinking to themselves, will this new teacher enforce the law? They were beginning to ask, not just is Jesus a new teacher, but this new king and this new kingdom, will there be a new law? And their approach to him, which is often our approach, isn't it, towards Jesus, when it comes to a substitute or a change, is this, is this a law that now applies to me? What can I get away with? What is the bare minimum? Which ones can I maybe bend or, or break or easily avoid? And what Matthew, what the whole gospel of Matthew has announced to us is that Jesus is a new king and he does have a law, as we'll see in a moment, and his law is not that new. His law is not that new, and it places significantly deep demands on each of our lives. So if you're a Christian here this morning, then these verses are here to cause us to reflect upon how we are viewing our obedience to Jesus' commands, to Jesus' law. Are we taking his demands seriously? And how should we understand our relationship to what's come before in the Old Testament to what's now happening with Jesus. Maybe you're a new Christian or a young Christian. These verses are here to help you figure out how you should view obedience to Jesus, how you should view obedience to His law. And maybe you don't claim to follow Jesus. Pray that this time this morning would answer the question for you, why should I listen to Jesus and obey His law? Why should I obey and take heed of Jesus' law. So, what we're going to see this morning, the response really that's being called for from us this morning is this, to obey the law that Jesus upholds and fulfills from the heart. They should see that up on the screen for you. To obey the law that Jesus upholds and fulfills from the heart. So, we're thinking about real obedience this morning. Real obedience to King Jesus means I get that, firstly, the law still applies to me. So he's ascended the mount. He's defined the character of kingdom citizens, the, 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 the character of those who are citizens of his newly inaugurated kingdom. Okay, maybe in these days we can particularly relate to kings and, and queens changing and kingdoms being inaugurated. And he's now about to lay down the law of that kingdom. That's what's happening here. And he anticipates that question that many are listening would be asking what impact will this new king have on the law, on me, on us, on obedience? What is the relationship between this new kingdom Jesus is establishing and the kingdom of Israel that exists? And particularly, 
the relation of the law. New king, new kingdom, new law. The hearts of those listening, our hearts, are not really naturally listening to see how we can obey him, but rather listening to see what we can get away with. If we're really honest this morning, even as followers of Jesus, we're listening to see not what we can obey, but what we can get away with. How far we can push the boundaries. And Jesus is crystal clear here. If you look down at verses 17 to 18, if you can uh, pay attention past the, the noise, whatever it is that's going on. Verses 17 to 18, look down with me. Don't let that distract you. Verses 17 to 18. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So law and prophets here really is shorthand for the whole Old Testament. When we read that word law, uh, automatically our mind uh, thinks of commands. We kind of narrow the definition of law to commands, but really the, the wording behind law there is Torah. So it references the first five books of the Bible, and then prophets brings the rest of the Old Testament into the picture. So we here have a definition or a shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Jesus has not abolished it. Jesus has not abolished those things. And contained within the Old Testament, really, we could say there's two main things. There is commandments, there is law, but there's also promises. There's gospel. There's law and gospel. There's commandments and promises. And that will help us to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying he hasn't abolished the law and the promises, but fulfilled them. So there's some... Uh, words here we need to define. There's a lot packed into these verses. If you've noticed, there's maybe a lot of questions you might have, so we're going to just spend some time unpacking that together. And if you have any further questions afterwards, please come and speak to me. What does Jesus mean by the fact that he's not abolished the Old Testament? He's not got rid of it. In saying that, he is upholding here the enduring authority and relevance of the Old Testament, all of it. Some Christians today would say that we don't need the Old Testament. That's not true. Jesus here himself upholds the enduring authority and relevance of the Old Testament. He's not erasing Israel's history. He isn't starting from scratch with what he's doing. He's teaching us here that there's significant continuity between the Old Testament, and maybe particularly in mind here is the Old Covenant, significant continuity between what's come before and what Jesus is establishing in the new covenant and in his new kingdom. God's plan of salvation is continuing. It's already begun, and it's continuing with the coming of Jesus, but something has changed for the better. That's what he's telling us here. That's what he's declaring when he says he's fulfilled the law and the prophets. How has he fulfilled the law and the prophets? Well, we go back to these, those two things, commandments and promises. He's fulfilled the commandments. If you remember in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you'll know that obedience to the commandments brings blessing and life. Disobedience brings curse and death, doesn't it? And the whole dilemma of the Old Testament, our dilemma as human beings, is that we cannot obey those commandments. So we are due curse and death. But Jesus fulfills those commandments by coming to earth, perfectly obeying them, bearing the punishment for disobedience in order to give us freely blessing in life. So he's fulfilled the commandments, and he also fulfills the promises. 
He fulfills all of God's promises in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. All God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus, right? He's the Passover lamb. He's the true temple. He's the royal king, the great high priest, the final prophet, the place of God's presence, the place where we can find rest. And in verse 18, if you look down, Jesus guarantees the full and final fulfillment of those promises. In his first coming, he's inaugurated the fulfillment of those promises, and when he returns, they will come in all of their fullness. His throne won't be in heaven, it will be on earth. So this is a, these verses, what Jesus is saying here, don't mistake, is a seismic moment in God's plan of salvation. Jesus is declaring the fulfillment of God's promises, the hope of salvation, and the guarantee of the future completion of those promises. He is a king who will eternally reign. Uh, Don Carson, uh, the New Testament scholar, says in his commentary, here Jesus presents himself as the final goal of the Old Testament and therefore its sole authoritative interpreter. That means if you want to understand the Old Testament, you've got to read it through Jesus, through the lens of Jesus. In and through him alone, the Old Testament finds its valid continuity and significance. The Old Testament promised him the New Testament shows how he fulfills those promises. So we're getting to it, okay? So the law still applies to you and me, both in terms of its commandments and the good news, its promises. Yet something has changed. What is it? Particularly in view here, in what has changed is, is the Old Testament commandments. Jesus goes on in verse 19 to talk about commandments. And then in the rest of chapter 5, he also talks about commandments, commandments that come from the Old Testament. So he's not laying down a new law here. How does Jesus, therefore, Jesus' new law, which he's declaring on this mount, relate to the commandments given to Moses on that mount and Mount Sinai? On Mount Sinai, if you remember, God gave Moses 10 commandments written on two tablets of stone. Along with those 10 commandments, uh, God gave through Moses to the people of Israel, civil and ceremonial laws. Civil and ceremonial laws. The, the civil laws were really the, the application of the Ten Commandments, which are primary. The civil laws were the application of those Ten Commandments to community life. How do you take those Ten Commandments and how do they actually flesh themselves out in the life of the community? That's what the civil law was. And then the ceremonial laws were put in place in order to provide atonement for the breaking of those civil and moral laws. So those three categories, if we want to think about it that way, moral, civil, and ceremonial combined were given to a specific people, the Israelites, in a specific place, the land of Canaan, at a specific time, the Old Covenant. What was the aim of those commandments and the ten in particular that you're probably most familiar with? Well, they had the same purpose as they do now, to reveal the character of God, to restrain sin, to highlight our guilt of sin, and ultimately to point us to our need for Jesus. That's really what the, the law functioned to do, to point you and me, to point them back then, us now, to our need for Jesus. In the coming of Jesus, though, that law changes. Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin, so the ceremonial law is obsolete. And the kingdom he's establishing is made up of many nations, 
throughout the whole world, not just one piece of land, one nation. Therefore, the civil law is now obsolete. What about the moral law, the Ten Commandments? Well, the Ten Commandments themselves aren't that new. The Ten Commandments are the old covenant expression of an existing law of universal obedience, which existed before Mount Sinai. Romans 2 teaches us that that eternal law of obedience is written on all of our hearts. It's written on all of our hearts. It was first written on the heart of Adam, and by extension, all of our hearts. And it's something that Romans 2 teaches us our conscience bears witness to. Do you ever ever see that? When moral things happen in the world, there's something, or you do something, even non-Christians feel a sense of maybe conviction. Their conscience bears witness to that's not right. That's not the way it should really be. It's not okay to, to murder. It's not okay to steal. Where does that come from? It comes from being made in the image of God, having the moral law of God embedded in some way in their hearts and their conscience bearing witness to that, but they suppress it. We suppress it. So it was first implanted on the heart of Adam, consequently on all of our hearts. Then it was more significantly revealed at Sinai. But because of sin, we can't obey it. The law then now hangs over us and condemns us. We can't obey it perfectly. And the punishment for breaking the law? Death. Death. But mercifully, God recognizes humanity's needs for new hearts with his law written on them and empowered by the Spirit, making obedience possible. He promises to do this in the Old Testament, and then in Jesus, he fulfills that promise. Jesus came as the perfect man in time into our world. Hebrews 10 teaches us that the law was written on his heart he was able to perfectly obey it. He met its demands and he bore its curse. We could summarize maybe all that we've just gone through. Matt Smethurst says this, the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and then died for lawbreakers. The lawmaker, that is God, became the lawkeeper in Jesus and then died for lawbreakers. That's good news. That's good news. Now for those who trust in Jesus, that law of universal obedience, that moral law that God demands of us, no longer hangs heavy on us and condemns us. Jesus has obeyed it for us, and by grace we've been given new hearts with the law written on them, empowered by the Spirit, and able to obey them. It's now possible to obey God's commands in Jesus. So this universal law of obedience has not been abolished. It was written on two tablets of stone, now it's written on your heart if you're a believer. This universal law of obedience has not been abolished. It's now written on our hearts, and therefore it still applies to us today. Christians are not lawless. We are people of grace and mercy, but we are not lawless people. The universal, eternal, moral law of God still applies to us. And we see that continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, don't we? And how in various places in the New Testament, the Old, the, the, the Ten Commandments are repeated, aren't they? We see that time and time again. The law still applies. The moral law, the universal moral law, still applies. And it's important to state here 
As we talk about law, we think of dryness and obedience and kind of drudgery. The important thing to remember here is that the heart of the whole law is and always has been love. Love. Love for God and love for neighbor. Matthew 22, which will be on the screen for you. So if we skip forward in Matthew, we'll see this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's the heart of the law. Back then, always, now, This law of love, this universal law of obedience to God and to neighbor is now fully expressed for us in the new covenant as the law of Christ. And we see that term used particularly by Paul in places like Galatians and Romans. Christians now live by the law of Christ. The law of Christ is all the commands in the New Testament including that of Jesus himself and of his apostles. And on the, the idea that the heart of the law is love, Sinclair Ferguson helpfully says this, the law is love-shaped and love is law-shaped. Okay, just take a minute to take that in. The law, the moral law of God, the demands he places on us is love-shaped. And love, what does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to love our town, our, our world, our nations, our family, our friends? What shape does that law, what, what, what shape does that love actually take? This is really vague, isn't it, just to say love one another? What shape does that love actually take? And the New Testament teaches us that it takes the shape of the law of Christ. Our society just wants to be about love, doesn't it? But what shape does that love actually take? That's a question that our society, that maybe we struggle to answer. What shape does that love actually take? What moral laws will define that love? Who gets to decide? Where do those moral laws of love come from? Do we just decide by consensus? What if we disagree? We don't get to decide. Jesus says God does. God who is love. His law has always been shaped by love. And the shape that law now takes is defined by the law of Christ. You want to love your neighbor. You want to love your friends, your family. Obey the law of Christ. And that law is good. It is good. If you don't believe me or have forgotten how good it is, hear what Jesus had to say. Think about those things we thought about last week the beginning of chapter 5, and stick with us through these series to see how this law of love plays out in everyday life and how good it is. So with the coming and fulfilling of the law and the prophets by Jesus, we get to obey as those now who have already been justified by His righteousness, His obedience, and who now have the Spirit within them. That's the great hope of the Christian. We obey now in light of Christ not to earn God's favor and grace, but because of his favor and grace. 
So Christian, new Christian, someone who's exploring being a Christian, we're not off the hook. The substitute teacher is no soft substitute, okay? He is a gracious, merciful substitute, but he's no soft substitute. He's not a lawless substitute. Jesus is God himself. He upholds God's universal moral law of obedience, and he fulfills the wonderful promises of the Old Testament. And as a result, we can experience life and blessing and obey from love and with joy. So for the Christian in Jesus, we have salvation offered, promises to hope in, and we have now a law to live by. The law of Christ, which now serves to guide us, to counsel us, to restrain us, because sin still is in there, right? To daily remind us of our need for Jesus in case we forget. But it no longer condemns us. It's a law we get to obey through love for Jesus with gratitude and great joy. For those who maybe don't know Jesus or who are figuring that out, you are accountable to that universal moral law of obedience. Your conscience, even if you're suppressing it right now, your conscience testifies to you that there is right and wrong, that there is a God. An invitation here in these verses is to look to Jesus, whose perfect record of obedience is offered to you freely to be grabbed hold of by faith, to look to Jesus who has obeyed for you and who now holds out these promises to you if you would just grab hold of them through repentance and faith. So real obedience to King Jesus means I get that the law still applies to me. And secondly, that the law requires serious obedience from me, verse 19. So Jesus has confirmed the law still applies, both its promises and its moral commands. And then in verse 18, he's guaranteed that none of the Old Testament, okay, not even the smallest part, uh, that's what it means there by not a, that an iota, not a dot, not even the, the smallest intricate detail will pass away. This is a guarantee of the final fulfillment of all of those promises. A guarantee that nothing will pass away until it's completed. And that completion began on the cross and it will be fully completed when Jesus returns. I was thinking as well, there's a promise there, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law of the prophets. Jesus promises the enduring reliability of the Old Testament Scripture, right? How can we know we can still trust it? Jesus promises that he would keep it, right? We are to obey uh, commands. Sorry. <laughs> so that, that, that completion began on the cross. It's now fully completed, will be fully completed when Jesus returns. And now in light of what he said in verses 17 and 18, he calls us to respond in obedience. If the law still applies, how do we respond? We're called to respond in obedience. And a serious obedience. What commandments are we to obey? The commandments that Jesus is about to teach to us. And the commandments he talks about there uh, in verse uh, 18 or sorry, verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, those commandments, he's referring to the commandments of the Old Testament, but we've already seen that we view those or interpret those commandments now in light of Christ. We, we view those commandments in light of the person, work, and teaching of Jesus. We are being called here to obey the commandments of Christ, and it's no casual business. 
We aren't to relax any of these commandments. Obeying the law of Christ is not a casual business. We aren't to consider some more serious than others. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Matthew 23, verse 23, uh, where he kind of uh, speaks to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So they were choosing what to obey. They were making some things more serious than others. They also did this, for example, in the area of divorce, which we'll think about in a few weeks. They were relaxing God's good commands around marriage. So you and I aren't to approach Jesus' commands in this way. We aren't to approach the, the commandments of Jesus in the way we often approach maybe driving, okay? It's, we'll never run a red light, right? Or we'll always put our seatbelt on, but it's okay if we do 35 and a 30, right, isn't it? Especially if the speed camera's not there. Or it's not how we maybe treat school rules. I'll never speak back to the teacher. I'd never do that. Or I'd never copy or, or plagiarize someone's homework. But if I turn up five, ten minutes late for class, sure, who's going to care? Jesus is saying we can't relax even the least of his commandments. That's what he's talking about here. Both in terms of our own personal obedience and in what we teach to other people. So there's a seriousness here both to our own personal obedience and to our teaching. Assume then is that we are all teachers, which if you think about your life, you are in some way. Even from the youngest of you to the oldest, whether we're teaching in our home, in conversations around the dinner table, our friends in school, in kids' ministry, elders, preachers, in small groups, over tea and coffee as we counsel or talk to one another and seek to help each other follow Jesus, you are teaching. You're teaching. And the warning here, the call and the warning here is not to approach these commandments, no matter how light or weighty we might want to think they are, we aren't to approach them casually or in a relaxed way. They all matter. Yes, there's grace and, and forgiveness and patience, but obedience to Jesus' commands and teaching them is a serious matter. Jesus warns us here in verse 19 and verse 20 why it's serious, because our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is at stake. If you look down verse 19 and 20, least in the kingdom of heaven, greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and then in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the casual, relaxing, non-serious scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So as we seek to obey Jesus to be disciples of real obedience, we do so recognizing that real obedience means we don't relax the commands of Jesus. Yes, we're saved by grace, not by obeying commands. But as those who have been saved by grace, we are now called to obey Jesus's commands. And as we teach those commands, we mustn't do so casually or half-heartedly. We mustn't create categories of like commands or become relaxed about what Jesus calls us to. Yet our seriousness with these commands is also, and don't make a mistake about this, is also one of, full of love and joy and freedom. 
We take it seriously, but we take it seriously for our own sake and for the sake of others. Our seriousness is also one full of love, joy, and freedom. This is evident in how and why we obey these commands. How are we to obey these commands? From love. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's our motivation. We're not obeying a hard taskmaster. We're obeying our husband, our brother, our friend. We obey from love and we obey by the Spirit. You have, I have help, supernatural, eternal help in obedience. That's how I'm to obey. Why are we to obey? Here's what happens when we obey. We obey, if we obey, we abide in God's love. Obedience to Jesus' commands is a pathway to abide in God's love. Do you feel like you don't feel loved by God right now? One of the ways to feel that love is to abide in Him. If you keep my commandments, Jesus says, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. John 15. We obey to abide in God's love. We obey to love others. We thought about that before. How do we actually love our neighbor? By obeying Jesus' commands. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. By this we know that we love those around us when we love God and obey his commands. How do I love my son, my wife, you, my neighbor most? By obeying Jesus' commands. And Jesus' commands are not burdensome. Yes, it's serious, but they're not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His burden is light, right? Don't forget that. And obedience brings joy. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love these things I've spoken to you. Why is he telling us to obey his commands? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. One of the reasons you might not be that joyful right now is because you're not living in the goodness and the beauty and the righteousness of obedience to Jesus. So we must take Jesus' commands seriously. We must listen to him, obey him, and teach others to do the same but it's also an incredible joy that leads to freedom, love, and an eternal kingdom reward. Verse 19 shows us how serious the demands of obedience to Jesus are. Now verse 20 builds on that by showing us how deep the demands of obedience to Jesus go. Real obedience to King Jesus means I get that the law still applies to me, the law requires serious obedience from me, and then thirdly, the law makes deep demands of me. Verse 20, if you look down for, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we might hear this and think, I thought the scribes and the Pharisees were pretty holy people. Like, am I supposed to do one over on them? Am I supposed to be more holy than them? Do I need to outdo them in terms of obedience? That seems hard, right? But Jesus here isn't getting at the quantity of the righteousness, we don't need to do more than them. He's getting at the quality of their righteousness, the quality of their obedience. 
they were more concerned about being seen to obey God. They were more concerned about external behavior. They had reduced obedience. They had reduced obedience to a cheap, surface-level behavioral obedience. Jesus sets the standard much higher than that, and thank goodness he does. He demands obedience that is authentic and flows from the heart. Matthew 15, verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, speaking again about the religious leaders, but their heart is far from me. Jesus demands our hearts. Jesus demands your heart. Matthew 23, again, he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They thought they were so obedient to the law, but actually, under the cover, they were completely lawless. That means Jesus used there is helpful, isn't it? The, they cleaned the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside was dirty. It's kind of like you and me driving around in a, in a brand new car or a car we're really proud of. Our arms out the window, the, 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 the window's down. We've got our sunglasses on, saying hello to everyone. The car's nice and shiny. We keep it nice and clean. But then if someone pulled us over and asked for a lift, they'd open the door, all the rubbish would fall out, the McDonald's cups, whatever it might be in the back of your car. That's fake obedience. That's hypocritical obedience. That's not real obedience. The kind of obedience Jesus calls us to. He calls us to obey from a, a pure heart, from pure motives, from pure desires. We've already seen that internal focus, didn't we, in the, in the Beatitudes, particularly 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. The good news of the gospel, though, is, right, we can't clean our own hearts. We can't renew our own hearts. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gives us a new heart. He gives us a new heart with new desires and the Spirit there to help us obey. Yes, we must strive in the strength of the Spirit to continually put those things to death, but we do so knowing that He is at work in us. And that real, genuine obedience is possible when it comes from a new heart. It means that you and I recognize that our battles with sin are primarily fought on the battlegrounds of our heart. Yes, there's things we must do practically. There's measures we can put in place but if we don't realize that the battle begins in our heart, then the battle will not be won. We need to recognize that we need to guard our hearts and increasingly have them transformed by the Spirit-empowered truth of God. And we'll see, as we'll see in the next few weeks to come, this kind of real deep obedience will recognize that Jesus' commands aren't as shallow as just not murdering someone, Okay? We've not done well if we've just not murdered someone, okay? Newsflash. We'll see that the kind of real deep obedience will, will recognize that Jesus' commands aren't as shallow as just not murdering someone, but as deep as not even getting angry with them. We'll see that real obedience recognizes that when it comes to sex and relationships, not having sex outside of marriage or not committing the actual act of adultery is a low bar, there's forgiveness and grace there for sure, but that is a low bar. Jesus' demands are as deep as not even lusting in our hearts. That's how deep these demands are to go. 
That's how deep these demands were always designed to go. That's how deep they need to go. We are meant to, we need to love God and neighbor with our whole heart. Why is this a good thing? Because shallow standards lead to sin and chaos in our lives, don't they? Shallow standards lead to sin and chaos in our lives and in this world. Deep demands. The deep demands of Jesus on our hearts actually make a difference. We so easily, don't we, just slip into a kind of obedience that involves putting on a part-time show for others, don't we? Or that picks and chooses what commands to obey and what commands to bend and ignore. How often our hearts wander and our desires within us seek to push the boundary or try to do the bare minimum. Real obedience is more than that. Real obedience is deeper than that. The law of Jesus demands more than that. It's the kind of obedience that you and I need, that this church needs, that this world needs, our friends and family need to see if we're to make the difference that salt and light do as we thought about last week. Non-hypocritical, genuine obedience to Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. It's been probably one of my most significant prayers, particularly in the last year as we've started this church together, to not be a hypocrite, to not say one thing and do another, to have a pure heart. I trust that's your prayer too. The good news of these verses though, of Jesus, the good news of Jesus is that he has met these demands for us. These deep demands are not burdening demands. He's met these deep demands for us and now by grace through the Spirit he is at work to fulfill those demands in us as we strive to obey him from the heart. And his demands are good demands because they lead to our joy, to our delight, both now and for eternity. Because real obedience means living as we were always created to live as we were always designed to live with hearts that have been changed by the love of God in order to love him and to love others. So obey the law that Jesus upholds and fulfills from the heart. That's the response that's called of us this morning. Knowing, though, that he has first fulfilled it for us and by his spirit enables us to freely and cheerfully obey it. And he's calling us to do that with an urgency, with a seriousness, knowing that how we both obey and how we teach others to obey really matters as we both seek to be real disciples and make real disciples who strive after real obedience. Let me just pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that we come to you as those who can receive and be known by the perfect obedience of Jesus. Father, we thank you that he met your demands for us. He bore the curse of sin and death for our law-breaking on our behalf. Father, we thank you that for those who know him, we can stand free and forgiven and that the obedience you call us to is light 
The obedience you call us to is joyful. It's full of love and it's possible. Help us, Father, to take your commands seriously. Help us to obey Jesus. Help us to obey him from a new heart. Purify our hearts, Father. Purify our desires, our devotion. Would your spirit do a mighty work in each of our hearts in this moment and in the week to come and in the months to come. Help us to listen to you, to love you, and to love others by obeying you. In his name we pray. Amen.